This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. Hi guys, you know that genetics plays a huge role in our health and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I wanna tell you about ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. Today, I am here with a friend of the podcast, a friend in real life, someone I've known for a long time, Dr. Gregory Clark. Uh, Dr. Clark, Gregory, Greg, is a economic historian, and he has had uh, some transitions, I think, in terms of academic affiliations. He like talk about that a little bit. But first, uh, I just want to mention a lot of you might know Greg from his books, uh, a Farewell to Alms, uh, Brief Economic History of the World, and I believe The Sun Also Rises, and uh, Surnames in the History of uh, Social Mobility, which is going to be relevant to a conversation here. He'll have another book out soon. We can talk about that soon-ish. It's been a while. He was on the podcast before. So, you know, I just want to, um, you know, Greg was a, he was a professor at UC Davis where I went to graduate school. So I, I saw him a couple of times there. You know, we just saw each other around. And I will say, uh, Farewell to Alms, uh, when it came out, I think 15 years ago now, it made a huge splash. Uh, it's a really good book. Uh, I think uh, Brad DeLong at Berkeley said is one of the best economic historian, uh, economic history books uh, he had ever read. I remember it was very notable, made a big splash. It wasn't, I wouldn't say it's super controversial, but you know, there's a little stuff in there about uh, elite over, overproduction, what Peter Churchill would call elite overproduction, basically, but downward social mobility. Uh, and so that's why I kind of took an interest into it just from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, Greg has kept going down um, this path. Recently, Compact Magazine wrote an article, or Michael Lind wrote an article. It was a, um, um, I don't even call it an article. It was a, um, vomit of paragraph after paragraph, uh, but it was about some some uh, group called Eugenicons. Uh, some of Greg's uh, work uh, was in there. Just a lot of different things. Uh, I'll link to that and Greg's response in Quillette about his own work. Um, and yeah, so um, you know, with that, tell us where you are now, Greg. I know you're, uh, I mean, you're recording from Denmark, so explain why. Oh, uh, so I've uh, retired from the University of California because we have one of the world's most generous retirement plans. And so you can retire, take your salary from there and then take uh, another job. And I have this position that's funded by the Danish National Research Foundation. And uh, what I've come to Denmark to do is actually to uh, see if I can link up with people here and look at the very, very good uh, register data in Denmark and explore social mobility here because Denmark's regarded as kind of poster child of a very high mobility society. My speculation is that their social mobility won't be any higher than it is in England. 
And so that's why it seemed uh, an interesting challenge. And with that money from the National Research Foundation, we were able to have a couple of assistant professors and a doctoral student and a researcher. And so this is just a new adventure for the next five years. For 1600, as it is now, that all of the social changes, the Industrial Revolution, enfranchisement of the working classes, the changing status of women, the changing status of the family, the fertility transition, None of it seems to have made any difference to the rate of social mobility. And then the third part of the paper, and for some reason, I'm still stunned as to why people find this outrageous. It turns out that there's a relatively simple model uh, developed by Fisher in 1918, which calculates under additive genetic transmission what the correlation will be of any set of relatives in a family tree. And this data fits that model as long as there's correlation of about 0.57 in the genetics of these social outcomes between partners. And it fits that model for the 18th century, the 19th century, and the 20th century. And it fits it extraordinarily well. I mean, when you fit this, the R squared of the fit is like 0 0.97, 0 0.98. Uh, and so that is, as I say, it's very surprising. And it has this bizarre implication <laughs> that most of our life outcomes somehow are determined at birth and that uh, social interventions really play very little role in these outcomes. So that's the core of the paper. But it turns out that I've had all of this time in nine years to develop ancillary evidence. And so that's also some of it reported. And with uh, a colleague, Neil Cummins, we managed to assemble a database of 1.7 million marriages in England from 1837 on. And from those marriages, because they give the occupations of fathers and father-in-laws and grooms, we can infer how tightly people are sorting in marriage. And the underlying phenotype assortment that that data is suggesting is 0.8. And the other thing that's consistent with this other data is that that assortment is the same from 1837 till now. And so people are actually matching really strongly in terms of their social characteristics. And so that says that there's room for a 0.57 genetic correlation because there is this, uh, now it's a latent, it's an unobserved phenotype, but there is this phenotype assortment that's going on. And then the other ancillary evidence is additive genetic transmission would suggest complete gender symmetry. Your mother and your father each would have exactly the same weight in terms of your outcomes. And with this lineage data, we can actually see that for a whole bunch of outcomes, that it's exactly the same weight and it's the same across all periods despite, again, all of the changing social status of women. And then another thing is that uh, people have said, well, look, this data can also be fitted by a model of something like genetic nurture or cultural transmission. And with this data, we can also test these other ideas of where you actually have to meet the person you're transacting, you know, that you're descended from for them to have an influence. Because something like a tenth of all children had a parent who died before they were age 14 in this data, particularly in the 19th and early 20th century. 
And you can look at the correlation of children who ever met their father compared to those that barely knew their father. And that correlation is the same in terms of social outcomes. And then subsequently, not reported in this data, we've done other things that look at, well, what's the effect of birth order, right? Because birth order is this random intervention that has social consequences. And by and large, birth order doesn't matter to people's outcomes in Britain. There's a small group of families, a top elite group in the 19th century, where birth order does play a role. And, but that's 1% of the population. And those people are much more likely the oldest son to go to Oxford or Cambridge, and they inherit more wealth. And so you can see that there are these deviations, but they're extremely limited. For the average family in England, birth order is irrelevant. We can look at family size. It seems to have no effect on people's outcomes. We, uh, what else can we look at? We can look at, uh, as I say, gender, uh, and so, so as I say, the, the, to a lot of people, it just seems impossible and outrageous that you don't have strong social influence on outcomes and that you don't have varied rates of social mobility. All I'm telling you is this lineage data from England is not suggesting something like that. And so a last, just the last thought before you even come in again, in some sense, what I would appeal to here is Occam's razor. The Fisher model fitting two parameters makes very strong predictions about the patterns you're going to observe and the data fits those predictions. Cultural models of transmission essentially make no predictions, but they can be engineered to accommodate almost any set of correlations. And so if you you, would say in some sense, which is a more likely explanation now? (laughs) Something that we know can accommodate anything or something where we're actually meeting a very exacting set of prescriptions. And, and so that's kind of a philosophical point, but it actually gives me some sense of, you know, what's the chances that you would hit upon something like this that's so specific that would fit the data if there really isn't something underlying this? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot there. Uh, what I would say is, you know, you know, we'll talk about the equation a little bit. Uh, you know, some of this stuff is familiar, I think, to some of the viewers and listeners. Okay, like how does behavior genetics work? So, for example, genetic nurture, where you know there are characteristics that are heritable that are genetically encoded that are affecting nurture and input into the offspring. Obviously, if you're a widow or a widower, uh, your spouse is not there contributing the genetic nurture, and that sort of effect is one way that people. Um, claimed that the uh, shared environment effect on offspring for a lot of uh, a lot of behavioral and social and cultural outcomes is actually weaker than people would think because um, it turns out that when the parent is missing, it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, which would mean, okay, well, what input are they really uh, putting in, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a lot of this stuff is familiar. Um, it's touching at different in- in- interdisciplinary points. Um, so we have two, you know, um, if I understand this right, um, like in the paper, we have two primary parameters. Uh, you're looking at H squared um, or heritability, heritability in the narrow sense. Uh, it's not really a squared, but we want to get into that. It looks like a squared, okay? Um, lowercase h squared. And then we have M, and the M is the measure of the assortative mating, right? So you said that there was an assortative mating of 0.8. Um, just to, to give, you know, listeners, viewers an intuition. I mean, this is, you know, so for example, you can say the selection coefficient 
uh, is 50%. Uh, that is crazy um, in breeding. That has to be like chicken breeding or something weird like that. In nature, selection coefficients of 10% are very high. Uh, 1% are on the high end, and you're happy to get that, right? So that's giving you intuition about selection. Uh, that's a really high assortative mating uh, yes. value. Uh, yes. it's, it's kind of crazy high, actually. Yeah, no, no, but, but, but let me explain how we, how we derive that from the data. So basically, marriage in England was between husband and wife, right? I mean, socially, that's who, because a lot of it is occurring later, right? And people have left their families by then, they're in their mid-20s, they're getting married, and, and it's between husband and wife. And so what we can look at is, well, what's the correlation of the groom with their father? Okay, and we get a certain number for that. But then you can ask, well, what's the correlation with the father-in-law? And the thing would be, if you're loosely assorting with the bride, and the bride then is kind of assorted to the father-in-law, then you're going to have this very loose association between the groom and the father-in-law. But the underlying data here is saying you're almost as closely assorted to correlated with your father-in-law as you are with your father. And so there's a very tight yeah. assortment going on in marriage. And it's, as I say, it's, it's surprisingly high, that number. But, but as I say, with, with this number of marriages and all of the data we have on occupations, we can estimate that number very exactly. And as I say, it's exactly. about 0.8. And so with an H squared of you know, 0.75 or something like that, you could get a genetic assortment in marriage of 0.57. And, and the thing is, yeah. the, the conventional literature looks at years of schooling as a measure, as mainly the only real kind of social measure in terms of outcomes. That's a really weak measure of people's social status, right? Because, you know, I'm in California, uh, a year spent at Caltech and a year spent at Cal State Sacramento is a very different social status, level of schooling, stuff like that. And so people who are sorting in marriage, they're not just looking at years of schooling. They're looking at, at a whole host of indicators. Of what is the competence, the abilities, other stuff of your spouse? And, and as I say, that's why I think you know, people got deceived by these other measures because normally the genetic correlation is going to be less than the phenotype correlation, but people are not sorting on the measures that people are looking at when they're sorting in marriage. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about like how this, um, like how you create this bundled characteristic of social status? Like talk about the issues sure. and stuff. Um, so, so basically uh, it's, you know, a lot of the work that went into this was trying to match up the people in these genealogies to the various social outcomes. So for Britain, one that we don't use is wealth because wealth doesn't meet the Fisher equations and wealth is inherited, not genetically. And that's very clear, right? You get transferred wealth and, and it shows a difference from the other characteristics. But the one we could use is occupation. And it turns out we can derive very good occupational status measures. Right. And in Britain, if your occupation is a judge versus a farm laborer, you're very, very different in the social spectrum. And so we get these very good occupational measures. And as I say, that's for the 19th and early 20th century. If you want to listen to the rest of the podcast, you know where to subscribe.